Acts 21, 27 through the end of the chapter today. Let's pray. Father, will your your word uh, illumine our hearts this morning that the dimness that remains therein would be dispersed by the light of Christ. We thank you, though, that though we are blind and foolish hypocrites by nature and lost like the rest of mankind, that for nothing in us you have seen fit to open our eyes and soften our hearts to see the light of Christ. And Father, may we live as men in the light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We stand for the reading of the word, Acts 21, 27 through 40. Remember the Jerusalem elders had asked Paul to go through this vow process with these men in order to show that he doesn't hate the law of Moses and to hopefully preserve the peace in the church. And Luke goes on here in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this and in and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the uh, assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I've been reading uh, the letters of John Newton, compiled in a book uh, entitled The Letters of John Newton. And... uh, In a a letter on spiritual blindness, uh, he has this sort of, he imagines, what if there are a whole nation of blind people, like physically blind people? 
And there were just a few among them who could actually see. How would the blind people respond to those people? Newton supposes they might be treated as uh, disturbers of the public peace. They may try to convince them through various means that they don't actually see. They might even cry out, Newton says, in an echo of uh, what comes later here in 2222, after Paul's speech, away with such fellows from the earth. It is not fit that they should live. But what if some of their eyes were actually opened suddenly? All of a sudden, in a moment's time, they would be convinced of their error, that they actually were blind and that there's actually such a thing as sight. And also they would be counted among those who, who, who could see and they would be persecuted with those who could now see. Jesus tells us about this in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So the world does not understand us because it has not been born again. It doesn't have spiritual sight. We see this is really what's happening to Paul in this story. And I just want to spend a few minutes looking at the story and then take a look at a few of the implications. Um, So as Paul is completing the seventh day of purification and this time is coming to a close, the Jews, it says from Asia, which is probably means Ephesus, which is where Paul spent much time. That's in the province of Asia. Um, And remember, this is at Pentecost. So Jews from all over the empire are coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So these people probably from Ephesus saw Paul, recognized him. And they really level two accusations against Paul after they sound the alarm. Um, the first is just as James and the elders had said to him, uh, Paul last time. And that is in verse 28. They, they say, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Ironically, while he's fulfilling a Mosaic law, they're accusing him of, of not. Um, and. It's interesting here at this point, I ask the question, it was the attempt by the Jerusalem elders a failure at this point due to the response of the people? And a lot of commentators suggest that in some sense it was, but I don't think so. I think this is what's to be expected. Um, I think that the whole narrative is driving towards, as we've seen, Paul's arrest and his persecution. And really what the concern was of the elders was not what the Jews would do, the unbelieving Jews, but what the believers would do. And so their whole issue was, how do we preserve the peace of the church? But we're to expect persecution from the world. And so I don't think it was a failure. Um, so, but the first, that's the first accusation is, of course, they're going to say he's breaking the law. He hates the law of Moses. He does not love the temple. The second, uh, in, is, is that he brought Greeks into the temple or Gentiles where Greeks is, is broadly used for Gentiles in verses 28 and 29. 
um, because this Trophimus was with Paul. And this is a, uh, first of all, a serious accusation that they're making against him. And just by way of reminder, remember the Temple Mount. Um, we have on the Temple Mount, the, the perimeter is the, the colonnade or Solomon's portico, the, the, the walls with all the columns, and it surrounds the Temple Mount, um, roughly, I don't know, three, four football fields long. It's a large space. Um, and then within that, there's the smaller... Uh, actual temple and then there there's a wall there the beautiful gate you enter and then there's a first court the court of women then you go farther there's the court of men or court of israelites then a little farther is the the court of the priests then you go into the sanctuary and then the, the holy of holies so there's this uh, pro- progressive limitation of who can go inside and the gentiles were only allowed in the outer perimeter the, the court of the gentiles so to say that he brought Gentiles in means he, he brought them into the temple in some sense. Also, just this will become more relevant a little bit later, but the, the portico that surrounds the Temple Mount, uh, adjoined to that portico is um, the, the Fortress Antonia, this big fortress that has these big towers. They're about 100 feet tall, and they can look down into the Temple Mount. So this is a serious accusation. We're bringing Jews or Gentiles inside the temple. It's also a false accusation. They assume because they'd seen Paul with Trophimus that he'd brought him into the temple and he didn't. And then also this is a convenient accusation for them to make because they wanted Paul dead. Um, As a peacekeeping measure, Rome allowed the Jews to exercise the death penalty against people who would defile the temple, even Roman citizens. They were allowed to execute the death penalty themselves. And this was not common, but they did allow it even in, in a pagan temple in the empire, they, because temples could be a volatile place. That's why the Fortress Antonia is there looking down in the Temple Mount. And so they were allowed to execute people. Um, and so this is convenient for them. Just an illustration of the volatility that could be on the Temple Mount just a short time before. Um, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a soldier who's probably up on the either top of the portico or on the, on the fortress, um, to quote Josephus, he thought it'd be funny to, quote, pull back his garment and turn his breech to the Jews. Um, <laughs> you can imagine the response to, to this problem uh josephus he he's prone known to be to exaggerate things but he he estimates 10,000 people were trampled to death in the ensuing riot so this is a serious issue and it could be a volatile place um in the court of the gentiles surrounding the inner court there were these four foot stones with plaques on them and archaeologists have found two of these plaques in in Latin and in Greek, so that shows that this is probably from Roman authority. And it says, uh, these plaques say, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. This is something every redneck wants to post on his no trespassing signs. Um, but it was a serious issue. So again, this is a convenient uh, accusation to level against Paul that he brought a Gentile in and therefore they could exercise the death penalty themselves. Um, 
in perhaps a bit of hyperbole, but the way that Luke is often often known to have. In verse 30, he says, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, suggesting, again, an ensuing riot was about to take place. And so they dragged Paul out of the temple, probably out of the beautiful gate into the court of the Gentiles, and in full view of, of the fortress Antonia, where they could see what was going on. News, news of this reaches the, the tribune, uh, the, or the tribute, the, the commander, and he takes several centurions and soldiers, so probably a large group of men to, to quell, uh, the uprising here, the crowd. And the tribune, uh, says in verse 33, came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Uh, there's debate here among interpreters whether this is the fulfilling the prophecy of Agabus or whether he had already been tied by the Jews, which would have fulfilled it in a more precise way. Um, and then it goes on. It says he inquires he was uh, who he was and what he'd done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. So he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually uh, carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Uh, Luke uses a, a rare word for violence here. And it's a, a word that actually in chapter 27, when the Roman ship washes up onto the, the reef, and it's being battered to pieces. It says um, that it's being broken up by the surf. That word surf there is the same word as the violence. It's this tumultuous violence of the sea breaking things apart. That's how serious the crowd was, that they had to carry Paul into the fortress Antonia. Um, and they're following, saying, away with him, which means basically put him to death. That's uh, the same phrase that the crowd of the Jews shouted at Jesus' trial, away with him. <laughs> In verse 37, as he's being carried inside, he speaks to the tribune in Greek, the Greek language, and surprises the tribune. And we see the tribune's assumption about who Paul may have been in verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Um, Josephus recounts, he talks about this Egyptian. Um, He's this false prophet leading Josephus says 30,000 men, which again, this is Josephus, so maybe the 4,000 men is closer to, to accurate. Leads them out into the wilderness, and then he leads them from the wilderness up to the Mount of Olives to attack the city of Jerusalem. And uh, he was rebuffed by the forces of Felix, and a lot of the men were either captured or killed, but the Egyptian himself got away. He ran away, so he thought, now maybe this is this Egyptian guy. Uh, this word assassins is also, they're, they're known as the Sakari, um, and quite possibly this is the very same group that Felix himself used to execute Jonathan the high priest. This was their MO. You remember from last time that they would hide these little curved daggers in their cloaks, literally cloak and dagger, and they would go into these crowds and they would murder people and then they'd put it back and then they'd cry out with the rest of the crowd and not, not get caught. And this was the M.O. of these assassins, these Sakari, and there's a whole lot about them. that um, you know, this, It may have been just a, a broad term for sort of people like them, um, but in some sense, these, the, these are the, the group of people that were with the Egyptian. 
Um, and it's not like Egyptians would not have known Greek. Uh, Greek was the language of commerce in the Mediterranean world, in the Roman world, and most people knew Greek. Um, but they were apparently known to have quite distinct or notable accents. And Paul's Greek is probably more fluent and lacked the Egyptian accent. So that's probably what it means by you know, the surprise of the tribute. Um, Paul responds, I am a citizen of Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus is a well-respected city, and actually Egyptians were probably held in lower esteem, but, but Tarsus is a free city, so one step below being a Roman colony. And so it's a very respected uh, Roman city. He asks the the um, tribune to to speak to the crowd, and he, for whatever reason, grants Paul the access to the crowd. And he says he speaks from the steps, so that may be the steps from going up into Antonia, or it may have been actually on top of the, the portico, speaking to this large group of very angry Jews. Um, and then sort of in the, the greatest cliffhanger, uh, Archbishop Langton of Canterbury ever sprang on us. Uh, in verse 40, it says, And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and then he proceeds to give them the speech in the next section. Um, and this word Hebrew language, it, actually the word language here is uh, dialectos, not glossa, which it was the Hebrew dialect, not a, a, the Hebrew language. It was probably Aramaic, uh, which is what the crowd would have would have spoken. So at the first glance, this passage may seem a bit like just a simple recounting of historical facts from Luke. But it's helpful to remember that I think the job of the historian in ancient times was viewed a little bit differently than we view it now. We kind of look askance at any historian who would inject his own bias into the history um, and just, you know, give us the facts and we'll, we'll come to the conclusions ourselves, which is not possible. Um, but they were actually, these historians were actually expected to convince you through the history of their point of view. And of course, that's what Luke has been doing this whole time. So there's no sort of just like FYI passages that every passage has a purpose. And this passage, of course, sets up Paul's speech, but it also contains some themes that we'll see explicitly laid out in Paul's speech in the next passage. So I just want to take a few moments to to highlight a couple of these um, important theological themes. And the first is the blindness of Jerusalem, which we've seen throughout the book of Acts, the blindness of the Jews and especially in Jerusalem. these people who were, should have been the first people to accept Jesus as Messiah, as their Messiah, are the people who are most vehemently and violently opposed to Jesus, his apostles, and the gospel. It is, as John says in John 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people And his people did not receive him. So Jesus was rejected. Peter, we see, is rejected. John, Stephen, now Paul. 
is rejected by Jerusalem. If we go back actually to chapter 5, we remember Peter and the apostles were arrested for preaching Christ in the temple, told don't preach Christ anymore. They went out and preached Christ. They were arrested again, flogged, and then continued to preach Christ. But these men of the Sanhedrin were so angry about the gospel being preached that they in fact then go on to stone Stephen. Also, wherever Paul has gone throughout this story, the Jews have always been the thorn in his side. They're always rejecting the gospel. Um, so if we go to Luke 20, you can turn there. Jesus records, or Luke records a parable of Jesus that's relevant here. Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. And he began to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully. And they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard, uh, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Perceptive here in verse 19. Then the scribes and chief Pharisees A priest sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So what Jesus is saying here is that God continued to send the prophets to Israel. They continued to throw them out, continued to reject them. Then he prophesied his own death and being cast off by the Jews. And they recognized this is about us. This is about the leaders, the chief priests in Jerusalem. This story in Acts is the last time that we encounter the temple in Acts. And we sort of see this bracketing of persistent violence and rejection of the gospel and its messengers. Um, And as the story progresses here, Luke ends up leaving uh, us with these Jerusalem Jews who are absolutely frothing with zealous hatred toward Paul and toward the gospel. So so what's the point of this for Luke? Is he just sort of anti-Semitic? Is he just trying to paint them in a bad light? Um, And no, of course, what, what the point of Acts is, is he's showing the glorious international spread of the gospel beyond geographic and ethnic boundaries. And he is kind of speaking the broadest possible biblical categories. He's showing how the blessing of Abraham is going out to the nations. 
He's putting on display here for us the tearing down of the dividing wall and the creation of one people in Christ. And this is the partial hardening of the Jews until the Gentiles come in. So we're both happy recipients of this as Gentiles, and we also get to be uh, active participants as we continue to spread the gospel throughout the nations. The second theme here I want to highlight is the union with Christ and suffering with Christ. I was initially skeptical because I had, uh, commentators would bring up that, that Luke is highlighting a sort of pattern that Jesus went on, that he's doing the same thing as Jesus went on. But I kind of have, have come to agree with those views um, that this parallel is sort of intentional here in, in Acts. Um, they both, Jesus and Paul, expressed this sort of flinty resolve to go to Jerusalem despite knowing what's going to happen to them there. And then here in this passage, the echo is very strong um, in Luke 23:18 at Jesus trial the crowd shouts out away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And we have the very same thing here in verse 35 and we came to the steps he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed up crying out away with him. And then in 22:22 22, which is after Paul's speech just a little bit later It says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So this pattern he's following in the footsteps of Christ for the sake of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is exactly how Paul describes his own ministry in Colossians 1. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here we see Paul, he's suffering, fulfilling up the afflictions of Christ. I think this whole story then brings us back around again to John Newton and his illustration of a handful of seeing people in the midst of a nation that cannot see. Because the world will tell us that we have one set of ideas among many competing but equally valid sets of ideas. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. It is because of uh, because eyes of, of foolishness and, and hearts that are darkened that men do not see the light. Again, from John 1, he says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this is true and this is glorious, but we also should remember with humility that scales fall from our eyes because God is the one who grants sight. And that's what John says as he continues in in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So we praise God this morning for open eyes and life in light of light. And may he grant us strength to stand as men with sight among blind men. Amen.